Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called From the Faculty Club to the Church Nursery, Little Children in the Kingdom of God. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 20th, 2009. As a campus minister with InterVarsity at Stanford University, in the fall of 1997, we piloted a faculty fellowship specifically for professors. About a dozen faculty members began a breakfast meeting every Friday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. in the faculty club. A year later, a Tuesday morning group started in the Bing dining room at the hospital for physicians. And a few years after that, a Thursday group emerged for physicists at Stanford's Linear Accelerator. We began with little idea whether the idea would work, let alone flourish. But across the next six years, about a hundred or so professors, research fellows, lecturers, physicists, visiting faculty, and administrators joined us at one time or another. What was the attraction? When we started, most people didn't know each other. So every Friday morning, a different professor shared their story. The very first Friday morning, Doug disarmed everyone with a candid account of his disintegrating marriage. The following week, Tony related his frustrations with raising teenagers. Another professor recounted his financial failures. In the succeeding months, it became clear that these remarkably gifted people who had reached the pinnacle of professional success were far more interested in sharing their stories rather than intellectual ideas. And so the group took on a distinctly pastoral character rather than any academic ethos. For example, how do you balance personal and professional responsibilities? How do spouses negotiate dual careers with heavy demands? What advice might an older professor give to a younger scholar facing the tenure process? Does God care about my neuroscience research? I still remember the morning that Chuck noted with his trademark sardonic wit that, quote, behind every great man there often lies a trail of human wreckage. Given a safe space that offered Christian encouragement, the Stanford professors experienced the message of Jesus that Mark articulates in his gospel this week in chapter 9, namely that the holy grail of human greatness that we honor, envy, and pursue can exact a very high personal price. Rank, wealth, recognition, power, title, privilege, and prestige. Worldly greatness has a very limited capacity to nourish authentic human wholeness. Nor does it protect us from human vulnerabilities, and it often prevents us from experiencing the fullness of God's kingdom. To make his point, by words and actions, Jesus radically reversed our normal ideas about greatness. He taught that the insignificant children epitomized the ethos of his kingdom. 
Three different times in Mark's gospel, Jesus warned his 12 disciples about the tragic end that awaited him in Jerusalem. Betrayal, condemnation, suffering, rejection, violent death, and then resurrection. All three times the disciples responded to Jesus with objections, disbelief, fear, and ignorance. They demonstrated over and over how badly they misunderstood the true nature of his redemptive mission. After his first passion prediction, Peter rebuked Jesus for his somber prediction, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned the tables and rebuked Peter for trying to prevent his sufferings. We read in Mark 10:32 and following, You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Excuse me, Mark 8:33. And then, after the third passion prediction in 10:32, James and John asked Jesus for positions of glory. The ten other disciples indignantly objected, clearly worried that James and John might gain some advantage over them. And then, after Jesus' second prediction in the Gospel for this week, the disciples argued among themselves about who was the greatest. Mark 9.34 There's a tragic irony in this, because in the previous paragraph, the disciples were unable to heal a little boy. Whereas in predicting his death, Jesus signaled that his kingdom was characterized by self-sacrificial service for others, the disciples jockeyed for human glory and greatness. Jesus responded to his disciples in two ways. First, he gave them a teaching. We read in 9.35, Calling the twelve to himself, Jesus said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, and the servant of all. And then second, Jesus enacted or dramatized a parable. In a sort of street theater, he illustrated his teaching. He placed a little child before the disciples, then embraced the child and said, Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. In Matthew's parallel account of the same passage, Jesus says, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18.3 Just one page later in Mark's gospel, the disciples rebuked people who brought little children to Jesus in order to bless them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. To welcome a child is to extend the simplest acts to an individual whom society dismisses as cute, but ultimately insignificant. Someone who lacks any accomplishments, greatness, status, or pretensions. And by extension, Jesus invites us to welcome every person in the same manner, 
without regard for external measures of their worldly importance or status. Lately, I've tried the following experiment. Whenever I'm repulsed by a homeless bum who loiters near my house, or whenever I nurse a grudge against a friend who spurned me, or envy someone more successful than I am, I try to picture that person as a little baby or a child, for indeed such they once were. I then find it far easier to welcome or receive them as a precious human being, rather than as someone who can help or harm me, or as someone I might ignore, fear, or flatter. The simple act of welcoming another person in that way, says Jesus, is to welcome him and in turn to welcome God the Father who sent him. Similarly, to become a child or to imitate a child, as Jesus commands, is to understand our own selves in the same manner. Instead of hoping for some significance in titles, honors, successes, or failures, as if those might gain or deny us favor with God and man, we should enjoy the knowledge that we are human beings loved by God. To live as a child is to live free of self-justifications that adults employ to prove their worth, and the very heavy burden of self-consciousness about our worth or status. To live like a child, says Jesus, is the only way to enter his kingdom. After eight and a half years with university at Stanford, I needed my own safe place where I could be welcomed like a little child. I discovered that place when I volunteered for a church nursery. Except for my daughter's soccer games and my travel, every Sunday for two years my wife and I served in the Sunday school class for babies three to twelve months old. In the nursery, my importance, or lack thereof as the world judged it, didn't matter to little babies. My Ph.D. didn't cut any ice with the overweening parents, a few of whom grew visibly apprehensive when they saw a man in the nursery. My mentors, Evelyn in her 70s and Miriam in her 80s, taught me lots about welcoming children and imitating children. They comforted crying babies, assured anxious parents, changed dirty diapers, and without fanfare loved hundreds of babies across many decades. Like my faculty friends at Stanford, they taught me a lot about entering the kingdom that Jesus announced. And now for further reflection. What would our lives look like if we really believed and acted on these words of Jesus? Consider the disciples' chronic and deep misunderstanding about the true nature of God's kingdom. How do children constitute a counterintuitive and deeply subversive example of greatness? And for further reading, see Henry Nouwen, The Road to Daybreak, and then another book, Adam, God's Beloved. Nouwen was a Dutch Catholic priest and author of 40 books. He left his Harvard professorship to become a priest in a residential home for the mentally and physically handicapped near Toronto. Nouwen died in 1996, but his influence continues through his 40 books. 
For books this week, I review Jason Bryan Santos, A Community Called Taize, A Story of Prayer, Worship, and Reconciliation. Downers Grove, Illinois, InterVarsity Press, 2008. 203 pages. Jason Santos made his first trip to Taize in 2005. Like the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who've trekked to Taize for 70 years, he was deeply impacted by its call for reconciliation among divided Christians and peace to the whole human family. Unlike the other pilgrims, he received the blessing of the Taize brothers to conduct interviews, research, and write a book about his experiences. The result is this simple, reliable, and admittedly rather uncritical introduction to Taize. Santos begins by describing his first encounter with Taize. His book offers readers what he calls a simulated encounter. He then explains the founding of what became the Taize community by Roger Louis Schutz Marsoche, 1915-2005, back in 1940 including its history to the present day, its ethos, and its vision. People like me who've never visited Taize will especially enjoy his very practical description of the daily and weekly rhythm, including the physical layout of its buildings and what a typical dorm room and meal are like. He even provides travel tips at the end of the book. Visitors participate in the three daily services of prayer and worship, characterized by Taizé's own chants and songs. Every visitor is given a work task like trash pickup, cleaning the bathrooms, or meal preparation. Small group Bible introductions fill out a typical day. Brother Roger, as he was called, was a Swiss Reformed Protestant, and Taizé might be broadly described as a Protestant ecumenical monastic order of about a hundred brothers from 25 nations. These brothers live at Taizé, but they also itinerate around the world with their message of ecumenical reconciliation among Christians in peace to the world. They follow their own written rule. At the center of it all stands the Church of Reconciliation, dedicated in 1962, which holds 6,000 worshipers. Founded in 1940, by 1970, young people from 42 nations had made the pilgrimage to Taizé. Today, about 100,000 pilgrims visit every year. Santos's simple book joins a larger literature about Taizé and shows why that pilgrimage is so compelling to so many people. The author, Jason Brian Santos. The title of the book, A Community Called Taize. For film this week, I review a French field called Seraphine from 2008. In this dramatization of a true story, during the summer of 1914, the famous German art critic and collector Wilhelm Ude rents a home in the French countryside. 
Three times a week, a frumpy and eccentric housekeeper named Seraphine attends to his cooking and cleaning. Then, in a twist of fate, Uday learns that this peasant woman not only paints at night, but, the, but that she's a savant following her religious visions, voices, and votive candles. Germany's invasion of France separates Uday and Seraphine for about ten years. And then fate strikes again, when Uday's sister reads an article in the newspaper about an exhibition of local artists in Seraphine's home village of Saint-Lay. He assumes that Seraphine is dead, but the patron and peasant reconnect and plan a Paris exhibition. But Seraphine's eccentricities turn into insanity. She's forcibly removed to an asylum until her death in 1942, cared for, in fact, by the ongoing generosity of Uday. Today her paintings are in museums around the world. This film is long, simple, and slow-moving at 131 minutes. But in 2008, it won seven Cesar Awards, including Best Actress and Best Picture. Seraphine is in French with English subtitles. And finally, for poetry, we've posted a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Browning lived from 1806 to 1861. The title of the poem, A Child's Thought of God. They say that God lives very high, but if you look above the pines, you cannot see our God, and why? And if you dig down in the mines, you never see him in the gold, though from him all that's glory shines. God is so good, he wears a fold of heaven and earth across his face, like secrets kept for love untold. But still, but still I feel that his embrace slides down by thrills through all things made, through sight and sound of every place. As if my tender mother laid on my shut lids her kisses pressure, half waking me at night, and said, Who kissed you through the dark, dear guesser? Elizabeth Barrett Browning, A Child's Thought of God. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 20th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.